Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 106, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or who or, or can show forth all his praise? Let us praise the Lord now by standing and singing together hymn 226. grateful we are again to be in uh, the house of worship. It is a place, uh, as we consider this morning, in which we deal with heavenly things, heavenly realities. We are able uh, now, without even the pattern of the heavenlies, to simply enter into the heavenlies. And uh, dear Lord, as we see this as an act of corporate worship, and as we'll see that more and more in the unfolding of the book of Hebrews and what it tells us, uh, we, are, we are amazed at the privileges that we enjoy. Uh, But we confess, O Lord, that uh, our faith apprehends only a little of this. Uh, And and, and even as the priests of old, uh, we have, uh, well, we feel as though we're dealing with darkness. Not shadows, we have the reality, but seeing through uh, glass dimly, as Paul says. And so we don't have as clear a view as we we would have, uh, but for sin and, and the present dispensation of faith and not sight. We are only able to deal with them by faith. And so we ask, O God, as we enter into the hour of worship, that you would give us faith and that you would give us a triumphant conquering faith. 
We ask you that you would, by faith, enable us to rise above the concerns and the trials of this world. We ask you that you would, you would uh, prevent us from having a spirit of worldliness begin to set in, whether in uh, the hour of worship or in the week to come. Father, there are so many opportunities which we will face to give in to the pressures of worldliness, whether it is conformity to the world or anxiety about the world. Uh, but again, as we keep on praying, O oh Lord, you tell us that life in your kingdom is a, is a life free of worldly care, a life free of concern. It is a life which rests easy and which sleeps easy under the, the gracious, loving, providential care of our Father who is in heaven. It is a life which is concerned above all to glorify and to honor our Father in heaven. And a life which is even afraid not to do so. Because we know as you conclude in the Sermon on the Mount that there is a judgment that awaits us all. And that is what matters most. Uh, not what uh, the rulers of this world think or say about us. But rather, or, or even the world for that matter, but that final assessment which you give of us and, and, and uh, at which time we long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, rather than uh, depart from me, you wicked, lawless doers uh, or you workers of iniquity, however you put it there. And so, gracious Savior, we look to you in your, your powerful salvation. We look to you, that is to say, not only in your teaching and your preaching, as we find in the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount being one of the best examples, but in the heavenly life which you now possess and which you minister to the saints in worship. We are very eager to partake of that, O oh God. We are very eager to be built up in our faith and in our knowledge and in our holiness. We want to go on in the Christian life making progress all the time. Uh, always turning our back on sin and progressing uh, speedily on to the heavenly Jerusalem. We pray that in this pursuit you would give us great success and great vigor, that we would be like David whose heart uh, and soul panted after the law of God. We're eagerly seeking it and taking it in as much as we possibly can. We're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And what we find uh, every time that we seek these things is that we find that they're better than we thought they could be or that they were. And so help us, O oh Lord, uh, in the realm of our desires to long for these things more and more. And the more that we long for them, the more that we seek you, the more we discover that we will find you and our apprehension and our knowledge of you will grow all the more. And so in that sense, O oh Lord, we recognize that the Christian life is nothing but a, a continual discovery and finding out of the vast dimensions of your love and your grace, the height, the breadth, the depth, as Paul speaks of it, the immeasurable love that you have for us in Jesus Christ. We know that you are a loving, compassionate, merciful father. And these are the things which we need to discover more and more for ourselves. It's what we long to discover again and to see in the evening sermon. Dear Lord, we pray that you would comfort and console your church. We pray that you would you would embolden and strengthen her. For as we constantly pray, O oh God, the witness of the church is all but extinguished in this land. Long ago, it was a mighty witness. Together across denominational lines, the church worshiping you morning and evening, observing the Sabbath, preaching expository sermons. But those days are gone. You can hardly find it in a Presbyterian church today. God, uh, we ask you for days of revival to come in our land. We ask you above all in our in our uh, uh, from our from our deepest desires as Christian people that you would show a concern for the church. For as you say, oh God, if the salt loses its saltiness, where is it to be found? 
How can it gain its saltiness again? And what is left to preserve the world if the church is gone? If the church ceases to be the church. Lord, look after your church. Strengthen her. Lift her and revive her up again. Strengthen her position in this world for the uh, for the need is very great. But God, as we pray all these things and as we look again to the history of the old covenant, we recognize that you are the one who reigns. You are the one whose providence is unfolding in history. And who are we to dictate to you what is best? If it should be your will that the church should be but a small remnant in our land, we will praise you still and we will praise you always. All that we ask, O oh Lord, is that you never leave us or depart from us, but that you will always be with us to the very end, even as you gather us into heaven on the last day. And so all of these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 17 is our sermon text. Uh, There's a very strong parallel there uh, with what we have in Exodus chapter 6. What we have in the Old Testament are so many revelations of the Lord where he is declaring who he is and what he will do. Uh, He does that to Moses time and again. He also did it to Abraham time and again. And to Isaac and to Jacob, all of the patriarchs. And then there was that long period of silence, as we discovered, uh, only to be resumed through the ministry and the life of the great man Moses. Well, as you look at what was said in uh, Genesis 17, uh, you'll notice a familiar ring. Not only, again, the Lord stating who he is, but what he will do. And instructing the faithful to depend upon that. Now when Abram was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him. I am God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you. And I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face. And God talked with him saying. As for me behold my covenant is with you. And you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. But your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you the uh, will make nations of you and kings will come forth for you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession And I will be their God. I will, I will, I will, I will. We'll find that exactly in the passage we are soon to consider as the sermon text. But now let us stand and sing and praise to God the doxology. Now looking uh, to the fifth main point of doctrine, I I can't say for certain, but we must be nearly done, uh, because I know several weeks ago I said we had four left, although the secretary's been placing these in the bulletin, so I'm not certain if this is the final or the the next to final one, but we're nearly done. The Canons of Dort, which last year marked the 400th anniversary, 
The fifth main point of doctrine, the perseverance of the saints, uh, following Article 13, colon, uh, assurance, no inducement to carelessness. Now reading uh, with me. Neither does the renewed confidence of perseverance produce immorality or lack of concern for godliness in those put back on their feet after a fall, but it produces a much greater concern to observe carefully the ways which the Lord prepared in advance. They observe these ways in order that by walking in them, they may maintain the assurance of their perseverance, lest by their abuse of God's fatherly goodness, the face of the gracious God, for the godly, looking upon that face is sweeter than life, but its withdrawal is more bitter than death. Turn away from them again with the result that they fall into greater anguish of spirit. They're again answering uh, one of the main assertions of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, which uh, the Roman Catholic Church asserted at Trent, and that was that assurance is a damnable heresy. Um, uh, they're saying it's just the opposite. Uh, to the Roman Catholic Church, to affirm assurance is to deny, in essence, the need for a holy life. They're saying, how could you possibly misunderstand us? Uh, the pursuit of assurance is the pursuit of God. And, uh, and the closer we get to him, the more full we are of assurance, but the more full we are of holiness. Just as we depart from him, uh, so we begin to lose our assurance. The careless believer is not the believer who enjoys a true assurance of faith, not in the way they're describing here. And so if the Lord should renew to us a period of repentance and assurance after a fall, uh, we'll be afraid to lose it by sin. It will be one of the greatest and strongest encouragements to go on in our seeking of the Lord rather than falling back into sin. But now uh, in preparation for the reading and the preaching of God's word, let us stand together and sing hymn number 12.
Amen. Please be seated. Now if you would turn with me please to Exodus chapter 6. We're somewhat breaking off in the middle uh, of one uh, pericope as uh, we call it or just a unit of scripture. Chapter 6 verse 1 through chapter 7 verse 7 is one uh, unit but uh, as we often find in the New Testament so sometimes in the Old uh, the teaching is so rich, we just can't uh, but break it up. And so Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, although we don't get the sense of uh, conclusion until chapter 7, verse 7, and there's a genealogy in between. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I've heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land But Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And let us pray together. Dear Lord, how thankful we are for your word. It is a mighty and a powerful word. We praise you for all of these striking revelations which you give of yourself to Moses. Exodus is full of them, uh, and and Exodus chapter 6 is as good as any. Uh, Let us, along with Moses, uh, though we might despair of the state of the church and the state of the the, the land, uh, we pray that we might gain, gain a strong consolation from your encouragements, which flow from you alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it just occurs to me, I mean, I'll get to this later on in the sermon, but I might as well say it now. Uh, Moses is despairing, as I just prayed, of the state of the church and the state of the nation. If that doesn't sound familiar and if that doesn't preach to you, I don't know what will. How is it that the Lord addresses it? We have another remarkable passage in Exodus. Because here, as we uh, so often have in this book, God is revealing his glory to Moses, which I've argued is the main burden of the book. On the one hand, how it was Moses sought the glory of the Lord. Exodus chapter 33, show me your glory. That was the prayer and in many ways the life's pursuit, uh, the life pursuit of Moses. He wanted to see and to experience the glory of God, even as he ministered in the midst of an unbelieving uh, nation and an unbelieving church. And the amazing thing is that again and again he was able to see it. Constantly the Lord was revealing his glory to Moses. 
even though his life was full of so many discouragements, uh, both in the church and in the land. You remember how chapter 5 ended with Moses once again dejected. And understandably so. The people were saying this in verse 21. May the Lord look upon you and judge you for you've made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses had asked Pharaoh to let them go. In response to this, Pharaoh had only increased their labors. They began to cry out, not that God would deliver them from Pharaoh, but that God would deliver them from Moses. It's amazing, an amazing turn of events. And Moses said in response to this, to God, verse uh, 22 and 23, Oh Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people. You've not delivered your people at all. Uh, and Moses is saying, in essence, Lord, I didn't want to do this, and now I feel vindicated in my uh, desire. I wish you had never sent me to this people. I wish you had left me in the land of Midian. There's some question here as to whether Moses was really any different than the people and what he said. People, uh, the people, I argued very clearly, I think, were unbelieving. The question is, was Moses like them giving in to a spirit of unbelief? I suppose there's something to be said for this, but there is a real difference between Moses prayer and theirs, since it is clear here that all Moses asked was why there, uh, why, why it was, I mean, that God had not done what he had promised, which is very different from what the people say, which was, in essence, only that God would return them to their former state of slavery without uh, the present addition uh, of hardships. But Moses appeals uh, in a very different way to the incomprehensibility of God and his ways, whereas the people only complain of their hardships. And the truth of this uh, assessment is that on the one hand, the people were unbelieving, but Moses was to, was believing, even though he was crying out under the hardships, you might say, of ministry. The truth of this assessment is uh, seen in the way that God responds to him. God responds to him not with a rebuke, uh, but with what I would call a very full and amazing portrait of his glory. He assures and or reassures, perhaps I should say, uh, Moses as strongly as he possibly could. He fills him with faith. Faith in God. And the central feature of what he says in response to Moses is this. I alone am powerful to save. That is the message. By the power of my arm, I will deliver the people. And you just wait and see what I will do. It's a message he gives like this. First, by bringing us to the end of human resources. The message, I alone am powerful to save, you might say, is the message of the whole Bible. It's the lesson that God's people are learning in every age. It's something that God teaches first by bringing us, not to the point of trial, but even to the point of crisis. By making things seem as bad as they can, or by, uh, you might say, making things seem worse than they really are, as though God has, in fact, forsaken his people, or uh, as though the seed of the serpent really was prevailing against the seed of the woman, even though we know that can't possibly happen. Sometimes, as I said last time, it would seem that way, but it's all by design. And the lesson that we are meant to learn is this. Man is powerless to save. 
The work of salvation is not the work of man. But this is something that man can never learn when things are easy. When man, it would seem, is so capable of achieving his own happiness. The truth is, man is a proud creature. And unless by providence God shows him his own weakness and his own misery apart from him, man will never accept or seek the salvation that comes from God. And that is something that is invariably true. The pride of man in the presence of God. None of us are humble by nature. There are no Pauls or Moses in the world, but by grace and many afflictions beside. Uh, Moses, who was the meekest man who ever lived. Paul, who was a man who was full of grace and who had such a mighty ministry of grace. Uh, These men did not come into their position, uh, position or the possession of such humility apart from what we find here being brought to the end of human resources. And do you really think that we will be any different? One of the things that we notice as we just look at what the Lord is saying, the first word is now. The Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do. There's a great significance in the word now here. It isn't before. It is now. Things had to get worse and worse and worse. And only when they were so bad that even the faithful began to doubt or despair of success did God say, now is the time for me to act. Now it will appear that I alone and the Lord and salvation belongs to me alone and to no other. Matthew Henry, man's extremity is God's opportunity This is something uh, that I would say by way of application that I hope we can say for ourselves. That the worse things get in the worldly sense or appear to be, the greater the opportunity for God to act. And the weaker man appears, the stronger we will find God to be. Just as the Apostle Paul says, recounting his own experience, when I am weak, then he is strong. My grace, he says to Paul, is sufficient for you. And as I say, we're too proud by nature to learn this lesson in any other way. Even Moses had to be brought to the end of human resources before he could learn to rest and to rely upon God alone as Savior. Second, the Lord teaches this by strong promises and assurances. Not only does he offer the word of God and reveal himself to us, but he assures us thereby. If you look at these verses, you see what uh, we found in Genesis chapter 17, the same exact feature. Nothing here that man will do, only what God will do. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go. This is not something that Pharaoh, powerful though he was, was strong enough to resist. I am the Lord, he says. I will do this over and over again. That is the assertion. I will bring them out of this land. I will establish them in the land of promise. I will make my covenant with them. I will be their God. And on and on the argument goes. Again, strong promises and assurances. And along with these strong reasons to believe that he will do it. And we might notice here what those reasons are. By my count, uh, there are five, if not six. The great reason we are encouraged to believe that God will do these things is because of who he is. I am the Lord. 
Having said, I will do these things and Pharaoh will be powerless to resist me. He immediately supplies the reason. I am the Lord. Everything he says should be believed simply because of who he is. Because he is God. In fact, uh, just as soon as I say that, you might ask the question, what more does he need to say? What further reason do we need to believe the word of God, but that it is the word of God and he has spoken it? Will we not believe him simply because he has said it? And so the first reason he will do it and we should believe it is because of who he is. Verse two, I am the Lord. That is the great statement here. It's the greatest statement the Lord makes in all of these verses. Is there anything greater than this? Is there anything greater than God? This is in many ways nothing but a diversion to the unbelieving heart. It's an excuse. Why should we believe the word of the Lord? Because the Lord has said it. But to the believing, to the unbelieving, it's a pitiful argument. To the believing, to the faithful, that's all they'll ever need. Just as soon as we realize who the Lord is and that he is the one who's spoken and promised to act. Suddenly we realize we have all that we need. Even when it seems that man is ready to do his worst. Our constant thought is this. God is the Lord. And with this thought, let us wait and see what he will do. That's what he's saying to Moses here. I am the Lord. Why don't you just leave your worst fears and anxieties to me? Number two. Having uh, seen the being of God, that he is the Lord or Jehovah or Yahweh. We recognize also not only his being, but his name. The, the name itself reveals this to us, who he is in his essential being. The issue here is exactly what it was in Exodus chapter 3, when the Lord revealed his glory to Moses, he did so by revelation of his name. I am who I am. And tell those people I am has sent you. That is, again, a statement of his, his essential and his eternal being. God does not depend on, an, on another for his being. Like us, we are created. We are dependent for everything that we are and everything that we do. But God depends on no one. He is the fountain of his own life and his own being. As Kyle and Dillich say, he is the absolute God who works with unlimited freedom in the performance of his promises. What is amazing to notice is the Lord stating here that the patriarchs did not know the Lord like this. I am the Lord and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord. Or Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. If you go back to Genesis 17, that's exactly what you will see. The name which uh, he uses to reveal himself was El Shaddai or God Almighty. Because for them, that was the central issue, especially in the life of Abraham, now 99 years old. And his wife, uh, not, not too much younger. How could they possibly have a child? But for the power of the Lord coming uh, to bear upon their lives. Especially in the womb of his wife, Sarah. That was the issue at stake in the faith of Abraham. Would he believe in the power of God? God Almighty. And so it was in this way that God revealed himself to the patriarchs. And though they had some knowledge of the name Yahweh, it was only to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and to Israel that the true significance of the name became, became known. 
See here how everything he promises is made to depend upon and to reveal this name. Uh, everything that he says in between. Verse 2, I am the Lord. Verse 8, at the end of that verse, I am the Lord. Everything that he promises depends upon who he is. And so to quote Kylan Dillich again, this is meant, they say, to show that the work of Israel's redemption resided in the power of the name of Jehovah. He who again uh, acts with unbounded freedom because of who he is. And so he associates salvation with his name, especially as we see next in the third place. Another strong reason to believe that he will do this, and that is the covenant which he has made. I appear to Abraham, verses 3 and 4, Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, uh, the land in which they sojourned. The question is, given who he is, Jehovah, the Lord, will he forsake what he had promised to Abraham? Will he not do what he had promised? Remember what we uh, saw in Hebrews about what God said to Abraham in making this covenant. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13, 14, 17, and 18. Let me read those to you again. He's recounting exactly what the Lord is recounting in Exodus chapter 6. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater than himself, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Again, a statement of what he will do. Verse 17, in the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. God has promised not only in his word, but adding an oath to his word, I will surely bless you, swearing by himself. In order to point to us and to assure us of the unchangeableness of his purpose. That what he states he will do. He will not annul. He will not forget. He will surely perform what he has promised. His promises are as certain to us as his being. Which is why he swears by himself since he could swear by no one greater. Again, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. It is, uh, it is a method by which God assures the church. Next, we see his compassion. Verse 5. I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage and I have remembered my covenant. Do we sometimes forget, beloved? And in many ways, to me, this is uh, one of the greatest points of the passage here. Do we sometimes forget in considering God's greatness expressed in the name Jehovah, his transcendent, eternal majesty, that he is also full of kindness and compassion? Listen to what he says to Moses in his great statement in response to the question, show me your glory in chapter 33. The Lord responds as he passes by. 
Chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives inequity, transgression, and sin. Are we accustomed, beloved, to think of his glory in terms of his mercy? You see, his name involves all of this, all that he is, all of his attributes, not because this is who the Lord decides to be, but because this is who he is as the Lord. All that he is, he is always. That is what he tells us in expressing his name like this. The Lord, Jehovah, I am who I am. And I am merciful. That is what the Lord says to the church to comfort and encourage her. And his salvation by which he draws near to his people in their misery as Egypt or, or, or as Israel in Egypt uh, portrays to us is an expression of this powerful attribute. Oh, yes, let us see God's strength and mercy, not his weakness. He is mighty to save. All that he does, he does so powerfully. Which is, you remember, the great point here. The great point of the passage is that I will surely do what I have promised. And I will stretch forth my hand in power. And I will deliver the people. And what is salvation then but an expression of his mercy? All his saving works are but an expression of his saving power. The strength of his arm, powerful to save. And it flows in great part from his great mercy and compassion. Do not think this great God does not hear or notice your own crying or distress. By the power by which he rules and sees all, he sees and he notices and he cares. Not only that, but he determines to deliver at the right time as we've seen, at the now. And when he declares, now is the time for me to act, so he will act. And on this thought, I would say, let us never despair in our miseries, for he has great compassion. And he is, once more, powerful to save. Number five, see from this how reasonable it is for God to say, and for us to believe with all our hearts that God will not only deliver, but he will take us to be his people. Verses six and seven, say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That is the essence of the covenant, that he takes us to be his people. And that he declares that he will be our God. It involves both of these things. Both aspects of knowledge stated here. Not only that God promises to know us as our God. But that in this we will know him for ourselves. In other words, uh, what we discover by way of the covenant. Is that God will not be to us a distant entity. But that he will draw near to us in compassion and mercy. As he reveals himself to us. And as he acts for our salvation. So we will know him. Or to put it a little differently, when he acts, when he saves, we will see him as our God and we will know that he is the Lord. Something else that we should notice here 
And this is not so much a reason I'm realizing, but it's just an aside. And that is the fact that when the Lord acts, when he stretches forth his arm, powerful that it is, uh, though it is, or that it is, on the one hand he saves, on the other he destroys. For the Lord to stretch forth his hand is not only a promise to save, but it is a promise to bring judgment against the nations. What is for, uh, for us deliverance is at the same time terrible judgment for the ungodly. His outstretched arm works salvation for one, damnation for another. And in all this he gets the glory. I am the Lord, there is no other. That's what he's saying here to Moses. Again, just you wait and see what I will do. Well, that was the second point. The promises, the assurances which he gives to Moses and to the Israelites. Verses 1 through 8. But then in the third place, we see the tragedy of it all. Which we keep noticing, sadly, the unbelief of Israel. We read in chapter 4, verse 31, that the people believed and they bowed low and worshipped. And as I said, if you never read the book of Exodus, you might have had high hopes for the people of Israel, for the wilderness community. But as we discover again and again in chapter 5 and then again in chapter 6, and just go on through the Pentateuch, what you will notice is that the characteristic mark of this community or this generation, as the New Testament itself makes clear, was apostasy and unbelief. It's also tragic, but there it is. Verse 9, so Moses, Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, words of encouragement and consolation. But they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. In other words, they let the world determine their outlook. They let their circumstances uh, smother their faith. Life got hard and so they stopped believing. God reveals to them his glorious name. Will the church believe it? In many ways, this is the question that the church faces in every generation. Will she rest content to have this when she has nothing else? Will she depend upon that great name, though her miseries are great? The sad testimony of Israel and of so many generations is this, in answer to the question, no, she will not. She will not bless God in a time of misery, of cruel bondage and hardship. She will not depend upon the name of the Lord alone. I say here what the New Testament says, especially the book of Hebrews. Let us not be like they were who fell in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Let us see and know that our, all our happiness as saints in this world depends upon the Lord and our knowledge of him. And when he reveals to us his own glory, that that really is enough for us. There really is nothing else besides. All of our happiness depends upon him. There is no other. I am the Lord. That is the substance and the life of the faith of the believer. The world and its systems, nations and kings and powers, what are they compared to him? Will evil rulers frighten us when he is the Lord? I can tell you this. Just a brief reference. It's my only reference today to the upcoming election. If an election can rob you of your faith in him, then it is time to check your foundations, beloved. I am the Lord. That is the message. But we also notice 
verses 10 through 13, how Moses' call is once again confirmed and restated. God is still dealing with Moses here, and his paramount concern is the faith of his servant, and that Moses go on in his calling. And so he tells him, I want you to go to the king of Egypt. Moses says, the people didn't listen. What, what reason do I expect that Pharaoh will? And God says, again, oh, he won't listen, but he will obey. Again, because of who he is. Moses was not left to his own power, his own resources. Again, that was the lesson. He was taught here in a very strong manner to depend and to rely solely on the power of God in fulfilling his commission. He was being taught, as with all of us, that the life and the soul of the faith of the believer, what it is to live the Christian life in the world, is again to depend and to rely upon God alone and to find, uh, to find that he can save when man cannot. And so even though Moses, once again, we find him dejected and ready to give the whole thing up, God will not allow him to do so. In many ways, you might notice that he compels Moses every bit as much as he compels Pharaoh. Neither man is powerful enough to resist the will of the Lord. Moses is to go forth as the, as the deliverer, even as Pharaoh is compelled to let the people go. Again, Moses, not in his own strength, still less with any assurance that Pharaoh will listen. He knows he will not. And still less with any help from the people. Let me just notice here, along with Matthew Henry, that the unbelief of the people in the church is always a burden to the minister. But in reality, what every minister must learn along with Moses is that the state of his ministry does not depend upon the faith of the people. Yes, it is greatly helped. And there is no greater burden to him than an unbelieving uh, an unresponsive congregation. I'm not suggesting that's what you are. Let me just be clear. But the life uh, or, 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 or the, the ministry of the minister does not depend on the state of the people. It's greatly affected by it. But as Moses demonstrates here, every minister must rely solely upon the Lord and the assurance and the call which God gives him. And the whole of his ministry and the whole of his life is the working out of the call of God in his life. Whatever he faces in the church and in the world. What does it matter if Moses cannot speak? Which, by the way, I've said before, was a rotten excuse. Moses could speak. He was just being weak. He was just evading the Lord. But what does it matter even if he couldn't? I am the Lord. That is his answer. And for him to charge us. Command, uh, carries with it the necessity that we must act. In other words, given who he is, who is able to escape and to evade his call? Was Moses strong enough to defy or escape the call of God? Obviously not. All of this is a demonstration of the irresistible power of the Lord to accomplish his purpose, even in overcoming the obstinacy of Moses and the dejection of Moses. Moses is sent forth solely by the power of God. Again, the reluctant prophet with the strong assurance that he will act. The Lord will act. In that sense, it didn't really matter what Moses thought about it. God did not ask Moses to approve or to, to agree with his actions. He simply tells Moses what he will do. That is what the Lord will do. And then he commands Moses to go forth. 
Matthew Henry, God's authority is sufficient to answer all objections and binds us to obedience. Let me close with concise thoughts on the gospel from this passage. Everything that we've seen here is seen most and is seen best in the gospel as we turn to the pages of the New Testament. I could just summarize it like this. The glory of God seen in the name Jehovah, God's mighty power to save, his impeccable timing. You remember that passage, Galatians 4.4, that at just the right time, Christ appeared born of a woman, born under the law. His covenant and his compassion, his condescension. God might have spoken and revealed these things to Moses. And he might have displayed them in the act of delivering the people from their bondage and bringing them into the land of promise, or at least right to the brink. But there is an expression of these ideas and attributes. All that God is here expressing to Moses that we find in the New Testament in the person in the ministry of Jesus Christ. As John says in his prologue, there is a fullness we find in him that we never found in Moses' ministry. We find all of the same things, but in such a greater measure, in such an abundant measure, when Jesus Christ condescended in compassion to save the elect. When he comes forth in the power and the authority of God. When he demonstrates on the cross and the resurrection the mighty power of God to save. Just as man was shown and seen to be his weakest. And so we must always think of Christ whenever we find such things in the Old Testament. A revelation of the attributes, especially the covenant attributes of God, where his salvation is demonstrated. Because whatever measure we find of these things in the Old Covenant... We find a fullness in Christ that we do not find anywhere else. And the greatest tragedy of all, having considered this, that all of the glory that shines forth to Moses in Exodus chapter 6, shown, uh, shown more brightly in Jesus Christ when he came into the world, and yet the exact same thing happens. The greatest tragedy of all, as John also expresses in his prologue, is that even then, he came to his own, but they believed him not. Full of glory, compassion, love, grace, and truth. And so the lesson of it all, having beheld the glory of God, not only as revealed to Moses, but especially uh, in a full measure in the person of Jesus Christ. The lesson is that we might believe. It is to have faith. And to find in Jesus Christ all that the name Jehovah, the Lord, expresses. For indeed, that is who he is. And basic to the Christian confession is the fact that Jesus is Lord. And in confessing that about him, we are confessing everything that the Lord declares about himself here. And in all of the Gospels, we find a revelation of everything that the Lord expresses here. Only, as I say, in a much Fuller measure. And because he is the Lord, there is salvation in no one else. Romans chapter uh, chapter 10. I told the children in the communicants class we would read that tonight. And let me close by reading this and just think of everything that I've been saying about the Lord and recognize it's all true of Jesus Christ because that's who he is. He is the Lord and he is powerful to save. And there is salvation in no one else. The question is only, do we believe it so that we might be saved? Unlike Israel, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, 
If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, and abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. And let us now uh, respond in praise to God by standing and singing together hymn number 10. Wow. Uh-huh. 
Christ. Receive now the blessing of the Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.